Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. It's the first podcast of 2022, and we have a great one for you. Coming up later, I'll talk to Chris Peters, NHL Draft and Prospects Analyst for Daily Faceoff and Hockey Sense. We'll discuss the cancellation of the World Junior Hockey Championships in Edmonton and Red Deer, Alberta last week. The NFL is still mourning the passing of icon and Hall of Famer John Madden on December 28th at the age of 85. Madden was a legendary coach and broadcaster, and his Madden football video game continues to be popular. To talk about Madden's influence in football, please welcome back to the podcast from Awful Announcing, Ken Fang. Ken, I welcome the podcast. Happy New Year. Hope things are well. Happy New Year to you, Ken, and uh, great to be on with you once again. Well, I mean, how shocking was it? I mean, we saw the special on Christmas Day, uh, the 90-minute documentary on John Madden's life, and, you know, all those uh, players, coaches, broadcasters that honored him. And then three days later, we got the news he passed away. I mean, how shocking was that? It really was. The fact that the documentary had come out, we heard about the documentary, it was being hyped quite a bit by Fox in the days leading up to the day of its airing on Christmas Day. And then three days later, you learn from the NFL that he had passed away. Um, had I seen it on Christmas, I probably would have had a different reaction. But when I saw it uh, the, the day after he died, it, it just seemed like the proper retrospective and the proper tribute. It was a love letter to the coach, uh, a love letter to a guy who has meant so much to the National Football League, whether as a coach whether it's as a broadcaster, whether as a commercial pitchman, whether it's been a person who, uh, a video game innovator, um, also an author. Um, there were so many categories where he excelled in. And, you know, it, it, for just you or me, Ken, one would be enough, but a, a man who has been in multiple categories and uh, excelled at all of them, that's just really amazing. And the, the fact that the documentary had good timing and also... Uh, we also later learned that he had uh, requested he, that he could see it with his family. I think that's probably the best way to, for him, and not, not not the best way, but for a way to do that and then go out days later to know that everybody loved him. I think that's just, uh, that, that was perfect timing. Yeah, well, I must almost say he had a sense that something was going to happen to him. That's, maybe that's the thing I get out of it. But, you know, he wanted yeah. to see the special, and then he was he's at peace with himself, and he decided, um, yeah. I had a great life. And I can let go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it was, it, it's just amazing that, you know, uh, how it happened and then the tributes to him um, through the all the networks that he worked for, CBS, uh, Fox, and of course NBC had a very nice tribute from Al Michaels, his, his uh, partner for seven years on both Monday Night and Sunday Night Football. Um, you know, I, I, it just was amazing to see and all the 15 stadiums yesterday because um, it was the last, it, was, it normally would be the last Sunday. Um, there was no Thursday night football games. There's one Monday night game tonight, but uh, 15 stadiums that all had um, tributes to him and uh, the fans pretty much uh, respected him no matter what stadium it was, whether it was in uh, Buffalo, whether it was in New England, whether it was in, whether it was in Washington, whether it was anywhere. You had these great tributes, and also to his favorite stadium, when he said was uh, to broadcast from Lambeau Field. Yeah, and to me that documentary was too short. I think it could have gone two, two and a half hours, even three. Because I mean, I wanted to you know, easily. Virginia Madden, John's wife, stole the early part of that. She's a character. She is. She is. The fact is, is she turned aside a couple of times and said the only thing he failed out was his driving test. That was absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Uh, she is. She is really funny. I think that uh, she's. You know, when you when you say that you know a, a husband and wife as they grow older become the same person, you can see the same sense of humor that John had, and, and that and that's in her too. Um, and raising two wonderful sons um, as well, in Joe and Mike. Um, you can just see how uh, you have to have a sense of humor uh, have, have, being a, a football wife coach, a football coach's wife, and raising two kids on your own, and then uh, eventually seeing your husband come home all of a sudden 
after all that all that time, and he's 42, he still has a long time to go. And you know, um, he's still he's traveling around. He's America's house guest, and uh, she just has a tremendous sense of humor. And uh, I, I I think you know, um, I'm sure she's grieving right now. So um, you know, uh, a, a lot of thoughts and prayers to to Virginia and and their sons as well. Yeah, just let's talk about that. We obviously he retired after 19 this 1978 season. Uh, and yeah, he sort of got coaxed into broadcasting uh, with CBS. He was wasn't really sure he wanted to do that at first, but uh, and he wasn't on the main team right away. He was with other announcers like Vin Scully, Dick Stockton, Gary Bender. Uh, he did a test broadcast with Bob Costa. So yes. I mean, did CBS know what they had in Madden when they first got him? Or because uh, it wasn't until midway through, I think midway through the 1981 season that. Uh, they replaced Tom Brookshire on the uh, number one team with Pat Summerall with John Madden. I don't think they realized what they ha- had in him at first. Uh, you saw the interview with uh, former CBS executive producer Ted Shaker. said, yeah, he was a character on the sideline. He's someone that we thought we could be good. But then I think midway, um, right around the 1979 season, they realized that, hey, this guy could be really good. Um but let's that team him up with Gary Bender, who was his regular partner in 1979. Um, he was on the D team with them. And then um, I think when Van Gordon, no, Gordon Van Sauter came in as a new president of uh, CBS Sports in 1980, I think they then realized, hey, well, let's get this guy to be the number one guy. Um, we need to do this really quick. Um, Tom Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire. Uh, the one criticism of them is that they sounded alike, um, and they also uh, there was rumors in the bo- and at the time that they got drunk in the booth. So uh, I think there was a great way to get Summerall more focused on the game. And although he didn't like the move, you could see how much he, he and John Madden uh, grew to love each other in the twenty years that they worked with each other on CBS and Fox. Um, you know, he, he was Summerall was the perfect straight man. Uh, he knew when to let Madden be Madden. Um, I'm not sure how a Vince Scully, um, John Madden booth would have worked back in the in 1981. Believe it or not, here's a great story. And I wrote about this in Awful Announcing a few years ago that CBS had a competition and wanted to see who the number one team would be. It was either going to be Vince Scully, and he did the first half with John Madden. The second half was done with Pop, with John with uh, Pat Summerall, and then uh, the second team would have been working with with Hank Stram. Um, Scully didn't like that. He eventually left CBS, but then uh, you saw the results. It would have been a much better. Summerall and Madden was a, was the team, and it was rather obvious. And then they worked, uh, you know, eight Super Bowls together. So you can just see. I don't think it would have been. I don't. I don't know if Madden would have been as been as beloved as he would have been had he worked with the Worksmith Wordsmith like Vince Scully. And I'm not sure Vince Scully would have been so beloved in baseball had had he uh, continued at, at CBS. So it, it, it's interesting how things worked out. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that that 1981 NFC Championship game between. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers and Dallas Cowboys, it was actually Vince Scully and Hank Strand who called that game, not Summerall yeah. and Madden. Yeah, and what's interesting is that uh, Pat Summerall worked the game on radio as the color announcer to Jack Buck. So, um, yeah, it was uh, Jack Buck and Hank and, uh Pat Summerall went back to the old days working together in the early days of CBS when Pat was a color announcer. Um, he didn't become play-by-play until like 1973 or 74. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it's interesting how things worked out. And uh, that was Vince Scully's last football game. Um, and Hank Scram eventually went back to work with Jack, Jack Buck on radio. But, yeah, uh, yeah it, it's, it's interesting how things worked out and how things uh, uh, became to be because, like I said, I don't know if John would have been as beloved working with Vin Scully because Vin is a wordsmith and he he doesn't he didn't really work with an, a color announcer on baseball. So and although he did he did pretty well on football, he worked with George Allen at one time. I don't know how that would have worked out as compared with Summerall and Madden. Yeah, uh, just let's talk about the influence Madden had in broadcast. Obviously, we uh, being able to you know telestrate uh, diagram plays with a telestrator uh, that people could see. Uh, yeah, the the impact with the booms and all the excitement he gave with the uh, analysis, and then obviously the production meetings. I mean, that was you know, his, him starting that. Uh, you know, because back I think back in the seventies and sixties, sixties, uh, uh, they didn't do that. They just basically show up, maybe they make a call or two to get some information. Yep. But they didn't 
you know, sit in meetings and talk to coaches and players for uh, you know, prior to the game. And yeah, talk about how that has helped. That that helped enhance the broadcast. Oh yeah, because you, you're absolutely right. It used to be the the, the production the, the broadcast teams would fly in maybe the day before or the day of the game and and and, and show up. Uh, Madden says, "Hey, look, I want to. We're going to be a team. We're going to be as prepared and know what it is about these uh, about the teams that we're covering, and we're going to talk to the coaches, and we're going to talk to the quarterbacks, and we're going to talk to the top players." He was the one that did that. I mean, now it's just not even thought about it's just standard and they would fly in like the friday of the game and then watch the practices and saturday night do the production meetings in the madden cruiser which was the bus that he took around and rode around and rode around the country to get to each game and then uh you know um Sunday he'd be ready to do the games. Um, they would be as prepared as the football teams that they were covering um, now all of the networks do this and it's now standard but before then no one did that Madden said look we're going to see the tapes we're going to watch the film we're going to be as prepared as everything and you know I think he had the perfect partner of Pat Summerall because Pat was a football player he also coached a little bit before he became a broadcaster so um, and then getting the perfect um, production team like Bob Stenner as the producer and Sandy Grossman as their director uh, they embraced it and then it became um, everyone realized that that's why the reason why uh, Summerall and Madden were the top team because they were as prepared as any as any football team going into each game. So they had inside information, and the the, the coaches and the and the players trusted them. So it's just amazing to think what's now standard was just something that was innovative back in the 1980s, the early 1980s when Summerall and Madden started it with CBS. And now all of the production, all of the networks do it, even going in, down into uh, the college football um, uh, games. Yeah. I mean, Madden made watching football fun. I mean, just, you know, yeah. especially, you know, tell straight, I mean, you saw with the, you know, Troy Aikman uh, in the documentary about, you know, dro- diagramming or circling Troy Aikman's face looking for a beard there. Uh, I mean, uh, the, 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 uh, the Gatorade buckets the mother father creates a son of Gatorade basket back in or bucket back in the when the Giants were winning the Super Bowl over the Denver Broncos well how yep. important was it for him to not for him not yeah, a serious football man but not take everything so seriously what was great about Summerall on Madden and, and what like, related to fans is the fact that you felt that they could be in your living room explaining the game, but at the same time pointing out something so inane that you that you look at or something you never even thought about. So um, the reason why Madden worked is that he could be colorful. We, we, when he started, nobody knew that he had a great sense of humor. And then when he began, he realized that sometimes football is going to be um, – not every game is going to be close. So he developed this persona about uh, – to be colorful and to point out stuff and to, to talk about stuff like the baby bucket with the with the, the Gatorade bucket. They had a mother bucket and a father bucket. They became the name they began a baby bucket. But one of my favorite moments and that wasn't in the documentary was that one day um, I think this was with the San Francisco 49ers when they were in the midst of their dynasty in the nineties. He was talking about how back in high school. You used to pants somebody. So, like, if you don't know what that means, that means that you would take their pants off and, like, bring it down to their ankles and embarrass them in front of somebody or, like, either in the locker room or during the game. So he was talking, I think, about Randy Cross and the offensive line trying tackling someone and, like, doing how how they would pants someone and, like, try and do that. And to me, that was just one of the funny things about Madden. He knew when a game to be close to be serious, but when a game was out of hand, he could be colorful and bring something out and keep you engrossed in the game. As such as, you know, also with the documentary, he talked about how Nate Newton's, the steam rising out of their head, mm-hmm. and him drawing little lines and said, yeah, you could barbecue an egg off of his head. So it was just so funny. He would just say these things and make you laugh, and he related to everybody, and that's one of the reasons why I think fans took to him, because he was relatable. He was saying stuff that, yeah, that's something that I would think of. That's something, yeah, that's something that I would be, uh, that I noticed or something like that or something I didn't notice, but I think it's absolutely great. So he kept fans engrossed, and uh, when he uh, went in the Madden Cruiser, he traveled and, you know, related to the people 
related to the the, the the dairy farmer or the the, the cook in the in, in the in the um in the diner so that's one of the stuff that one why people took to him because he was just so relatable in the booth and uh, was could be the guy in your living room watching the Super Bowl with you during your Super Bowl party. I know. I mean, one clip that uh, I've been circulating on Twitter was a game between the Eagles and the Cowboys in 1995 when Barry Switzer went for it on fourth and one, not once, yeah. but twice. And he got saved by the two-minute warning there in the fourth quarter. And, you know, Madden was basically criticizing Switzer for going for it the first time, and he couldn't believe they're going for it again. And then when the Eagles stopped him, he basically told me, he said he, he hopes that the Cowboys, he might see that the Cowboys deserve to lose. Yes, and that, you know, you you wouldn't hear that today, but Madden had enough equity with fans that say, yeah, that's exactly right. He deserved to lose. They shouldn't be going for it. Um, if, 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 one of the things about Madden, and uh, one of the things that I would not, in my research and I, when I did the, uh, when I wrote uh, an obituary about him for awful announcing is that he was just a few credits shy of his doctorate. I know it was in physical education, but he was still a few credit shy. I mean, he had a master's degree from college, so here's a guy who knows how to teach, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was a great coach. He was a great teacher, but also at the same time knew his players so he could, um, you know, let them be the men that they, they could be. But at the same time, he was a great teacher, so he could, you know, tell you things about the, about the NFL, tell you about things, what's going on about the field, and then say something that was so relatable, like they deserve to lose, and you're, you're, on the, you're in your living room saying, yeah, that's exactly right, they do deserve to lose. And if you're an Eagles fan like you were, Ken, you were saying absolutely they deserve to lose. So, Cowboys fans are probably saying the same thing at that time. But, exactly. So course, but that's why he's so relatable. He just said things that, that everybody could relate to, everybody could say, and he was just a great teacher at it, and that's why one of the reasons why that he was such a great um, announcer and was a number one announcer from 1981 all the way down to 2009 when he retired. He was always at the top of his game. I mean, the, the one wrong thing I can always remember him saying, I think he admitted it afterwards in the broadcast, was uh, the Tom Brady's first Super Bowl victory when the game yep. was tied late in the fourth quarter and he said the Patriots should play for overtime and Lo and behold, they ended up getting the kicking the wing, game-winning field goal as time expired, and I think that's when John Madden was impressed with Tom Brady. Yeah, he, he could see something. He said it was, and I remember when he said it too. I was watching that game. Of course, I'm, I live in New England, so everybody is. That's when everybody said, "Oh, that's when I knew he was going to be great." But Madden said that was a special as a Joe Montana um, drive. And he wasn't comparing him to Joe Montana, but saying that was a special as a Joe Montana drive, and. Brady, who grew up in San Francisco in the Bay Area, um, and watching Joe Montana over those years, and of course, when you're growing up, you in that era, you want to be Joe Montana. So that was this Joe Montana moment, and now Brady has uh, done his own thing and, and doing the same thing. In fact, he did it uh, this past weekend against the New York Jets. So yeah, um, I, I think at the same time, uh, Manning can admit he could admit he was wrong, but also at the same time, realize in the moment how special things could be, and that's uh, the same. You could see him turning at the same time, saying, you know, they should play for overtime, but then realizing how special that what that drive was and a championship drive and saying, yeah, this is something special, like a Joe Montana uh, drive. And, uh, you know, that, that's the, the, the thing about uh, Madden that made him so great is that he could admit he was wrong, but also realize in the moment how special things could be. I would have loved to have John Madden calling the Jets-Buccaneers game on Sunday and Antonio Brown pulling the stunt that he did and what Madden would have had to say about that. I think he would have gone off. Oh, yeah, he would have gone off. Um, he would have said, I don't understand um, um, what Antonio Brown is doing. But also, at the same time, I think he also would have realized that uh, Brown had a history of doing this and also thinking maybe there's something wrong with him, maybe show a little compassion, too. Um, so, yeah, he would have gone off but also said, you know, I hope he gets the help he needs. I think that's what John Madden would have said. So, um, yeah, you just think about some of the games that have gone on and, and since he retired and said, wow, what would John say about that? So, um, you know, we're always going to be thinking about that now, um, you know, um, and the, the, it's just sad that uh, we won't have him around for at least one more Super Bowl uh, and a West Coast Super Bowl in Los Angeles. It would have been great to hear what he would have had to say, uh, what, you know, calling into Sirius XM Radio, which he did a weekly spot on. So it would have been great to hear what, he, what his thoughts would have been. 
course, we can't have a discussion of John Madden without talking about the influential Madden uh, uh, video game. Eh? Just the fact that yeah, a lot of the you know, younger kids probably know John Madden because of that, but not realizing what he was you know, before the video game. But, man, how much has that video game influenced uh, football and, and the fans? Oh, it's, it's influenced so many players, millions of gamers around the world. If there are tournaments all over in this game, I mean, kids, millennials, uh, Gen Z, Gen Y, they now play that game, not realizing who brought that up. I mean, they all think that is just a brand now. And, and that's one of the reasons why EA Sports purchased his name for $150 million in per, to use it in perpetuity. Um, interesting note on Dan Patrick on the day that we're taping. He mentioned the two other people that, that EA Sports uh, approached. And one was Joe Montana, because, but Montana couldn't do it because he was uh, with Atari. And you know who, uh, who was the other one, Chen? Um, I'm not sure. Who was the other one? Um, you'll never guess. It was a quarterback that played for the Minnesota Vikings. Fran Tarkin? No, oh. Joe Cap. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They approached Joe Cap, and um, both of them turned him down. Madden wasn't even the first choice. And then when EA Sports said, look, we want to do this with 7-on-7 seven seven because of the graphics, Madden goes, no, 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 no. If you're going to do football, it has to be 11-on-11. 11 11. It has to be done right. And I don't care how you do it, but it's got to be done right. If I'm going to lend my name to this, it's got to be real football. And, of course, they approached him in 1985. They didn't get it done until – release it until 1989 because of the technology. But once it was done – it was innovative, and the graphics were just great. And the fact that Madden was part of it, lent his name to it. Um, and uh, at the time, the NFL, of course, wasn't as big as it is now. But it got a, it got younger kids to play the game and learn about it. And football players, it, it's funny just to see how current day football player goes. Yeah, I was Madden, and I coached against Madden when I played it, and I played against his players. And I used, and it just taught them how to do certain plays and it's certain how to do run right or run the sweep or you know how what defense to play and he gave you the suggestions on his own uh, when he used to voice the game so yeah it, it's just it's amazing to think about um how many generations i think two or three generations of fans now have learned football through madden and um the fact there are so many millions of gamers that have learn football and play the game through him and through his game and through his brand and not know his influence on the game. This is amazing. And I think that it's going to continue for years to come. Can there be an, ever again, another John Madden type analyst, especially in the day of in this day and age of social media where, you know, people are quick to criticize, uh, you know, the analysts out there, like, you know, you see stuff about Collinsworth out there and, yeah, uh, Joe Buck, uh, play-by-play guy for Fox, and uh, Troy Aikman. I mean, can, can we ever have a Joe Madden in a social media age, a John Madden in a social media age? The closest one I can think to is Tony Romo, but Tony doesn't have the, the, the gravitas that Madden did. I mean, he didn't win a championship like like Madden did. He, was, he didn't become a coach. Um, you know, of course, you know, in this day and age, uh, you know, um, there is going to be criticism. I don't know if Madden would have liked to be criticized with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, Twitter. We had Twitter back in 1981, but I, I think there's certain. Um, I don't know if we'd be able to have a, a dominating personality in the booth like Madden. Um, he did so many things to innovate uh, football. As you mentioned, the telestrator. There was no telestrator. It's now standard in this day and age in, in broadcasting. Every sport uses it, but. The first sport to use it, the first person to use it was John Madden. So um, I don't know if you're ever going to get a personality like him to not only range all over all types of uh, platforms and media like he did. Um, you're going to come close. Uh, you may come close with a few people, but to get that wide-ranging influence that Madden did, I don't think you're going to have that. Well, before we wrap up this portion of the uh, interview here, Ken, uh, obviously – you know, John Madden's passing, and then a few days later, Betty White passed oh, away at the age of 99 yeah. on New Year's Eve, just you know, a few days shy of her 100th birthday. It's just a kick in the gut because we, we all love Betty White. I mean, I don't know there's a person out there that could, not, could ever hate 
Betty White. I mean, just you know, for the Golden Girls, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, her marriage to Alan Ludden, a Password Game Show host. Uh, you know, her appearances on um, Password Match Game. Uh, just how sad was it to you know for oh, yeah. to miss out on getting turning a hundred? I mean. Um... And the thing is, is that uh, it's it, she died of natural causes, so that's fine. That's the way to go. Yeah. If you're gonna go die of natural causes, don't be of cancer, don't be of, of, of you know being shot. You died of natural causes, and you lived a great life, and it was fantastic. I wish she could have hit a hundred. Uh, her hundredth birthday would have been January seventeenth. There were ready to be celebrations. Um, there was going to be a TV special. People already put out a hundredth uh, cover of her being on the you know ready to celebrate her hundredth birthday. Um, but I think it's. You you know, it's in a sense, it, it might be good this way because we get an appreciation, kind of like with Madden. Um, NBC showed her SNL episode that she hosted back in uh, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I think she became beloved. I mean, she was always beloved. She was always, as you mentioned, there was nobody who said a negative word. Maybe B. Arthur did, but B. Arthur was a little bit different. Yeah. Um, her co-star, uh, B. Arthur just didn't like anybody. So um, I, I think maybe not being liked by B. Arthur was a badge of honor. Um, but um, she just did everything great. But I think she became the, uh, the, uh, the great icon that she did when she did the Snickers Super Bowl ad. When um, the, they said, you're playing like Betty White. She gets tackled in the mud. And then she goes, you know, you're playing like Betty White. And she goes, well, that's not what your girlfriend told me. Her, her delivery was great. And she was 89, at the, almost 88 at the time, and almost 80, almost 90, and her timing was perfect. And then she did Hot in Cleveland after that on Nick. Um, that was just perfect. Um, and she could still do great things, and she could still act, and she still had great comedic timing. She was... Um, she was loved by the the younger generation. She was doing raps with Queen Latifah. She was doing all these great things. She was doing stuff with Jay Z, and uh, I mean, it's just so funny. I mean, that's and I think the the kids related to her because she was the grandma that was saying stuff that their grandmas would say. Yeah. So I, I think that she was just perfect. And I I think one of the great stories um, uh, after her passing was that I think one of the castmates of SNL, I think Seth Meyers said it. That after the after party, she she was the only one of the guests in his generation of uh, of SNL cast that stayed for the entire party and left by by ordering vodka. Yeah, yeah, and I think that having a hot dog too. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think that's perfect, and it just adds to the legend of Betty White. And um, you know, um, I, I just I'm gonna miss her whether she was Sue Ann Nivens of uh, on Mary Tyler Moore. Rose Nyland on uh, the Golden Girls and, and being hot in Cleveland as um, as the caretaker. She was and what's interesting on both Mary Tyler Moore and on Hot in Cleveland, there were supposed to be one-time shots, yep. and then the, the, the producers realized we've got something special here. We got to keep her on for the entire run, and she won Emmys for uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show and also uh, Golden Girls. And uh, she just continued to, to ride in, in a big wave, and uh, we're going to miss her. Was that Samson barking in the background? Yeah, yeah, that's Samson. <laughs> he's just he's letting, he's letting you know he's here. Hi, <laughs> right, Samson. Samson. Harper says hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, I appreciate it. You can follow Ken on Twitter at Fang Bites. Uh, Fang, uh, sorry, Fang Bites, F-A-N-G-B-I-T-E-S. And uh, Ken, I appreciate it. Uh, you Thanks, Bites. Thanks. So add an S in there between the G and the B. Uh, yeah, you're right. I apologize. I can't read my own. Uh, I can't get my eyes checked. I get one of these days. So I uh, can't appreciate a few minutes. I somebody else. So. <laughs> can't appreciate a few minutes, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Ken. Talk to you soon, and Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, too. Uh, coming up, I'll discuss the cancellation of the World Junior Hockey Championships because of COVID-19 outbreaks with Chris Peters of Daily Faceoff and Hockey Sense. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. There are no words to describe it. The isolation. The boredom. The loneliness. If you're wondering where your teenage son or daughter's spirit went, you're hardly alone. The past year has been devastating, 
especially for them. But here's the good news. They might just find it again, playing high school sports. Workouts that stimulate, teammates and coaches that care, the sense of belonging so many of us have been missing lately. That's what school sports are all about. The sense of achievement is real and the camaraderie is hard to beat. Coping with uncertainty is difficult, but school sports can help the teenagers in your family start feeling like themselves again. Encourage them to give it a try. High school sports, it's so much more than a game. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Indiana Nash. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shaw. Welcome back to the podcast. The 2022 World Junior Hockey Championship came to a sudden end last Thursday after the International Ice Hockey Federation canceled it because of COVID-19 issues involving several of the teams. Joining me to talk about that is the NHL Draft and Prospects Analyst for Daily Faceoff and Hockey Sense, Chris Peters. Chris, uh, welcome to the podcast. I know we've talked before when I was doing a uh, Facebook Live, but I appreciate you coming on a few minutes to talk about the uh, junior World Juniors. Yeah, Ken, my pleasure to be with you. It's uh, It's been a crazy week, but yeah, it's... Uh unfortunate the way things went down but yeah i mean it's just the way the way the way of the world right now yeah. we kind of have to adapt as we go well who's to blame the, the i i the i i double ihf screw this up from the get-go i mean last year they played in the bubble in edmonton everything went well this year no bubble and all hell broke loose yeah you know i think there's certainly some amount of blame that the double ihf and, and hockey canada have to take on but i i don't think it's so much, you know, they've caught a lot of flack for, for the way things went, but I think things moved in such a way, and there was a lot of pushback from teams, too, about the bubble. They didn't want to have a bubble like last year. Um, Hockey Canada, you know, they, they said that in their their post uh, their post cancellation media availability, and I you know I double checked just to make sure that that was the case. The teams didn't want to be in a bubble. Now that said, I think that they wanted some level of protection against the way things went um, by having maybe exclusive hotels or you know a couple of other things that that, that would have worked a little bit better. But I think that the decisions that would have had to have been made to prevent what happened from happening would have had to have made months in advance with a completely different set of information that we were dealing with at the time. I mean, really, the, the Omicron variant and how transmissible it became and how easily it would it seemed to be to test positive for that variant, um, it really changed the dynamic of the tournament. So as much as we want to blame individuals and decision makers for that, really what happened was the, 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 local, health or, uh, the local health authorities really started to tamp down in terms of the, the, the kind of protocols that were going to be required. Those changed dramatically from what started at the beginning of the tournament. And then in the end, when it came to close contacts and things like that, and they started to have, have to cancel games, all of a sudden the health and safety protocols started impacting the actual integrity of the tournament in terms of you know the standings and everything else and how teams are going to line up. And that's really what, what killed it. So, you know, I think that there's a there's certainly a, a little bit of blame to go around, but, I mean, there's really one culprit here, and it's COVID-19. Yeah, I think it's reading one. I mean, I've seen this on online. I don't know how true it is, but there was a, a wedding in one of the hotels in Red Deer. It really was probably could have been really the, the problem with, with this. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the hotel that the teams were staying at in Red Deer did have a, a, a wedding reception planned for the night before. I, it's my understanding that they they, tr- they were doing their best to keep events away from the players, but from what I understand from people on the ground, there really was no avoiding people. There was There was a boutique in the hotel. There was a hair salon in the hotel. So you had people coming and going with regularity, and and – the players just coming back from the arena and walking through the lobby and going to their room and getting on an elevator, there was no, you know, there was a, there was a chance that they were going to run into people from outside of the tournament cohort. So in the end, there really was, there was no stopping this. And, and the other thing to keep in mind too, Ken, is that they did have 50% capacity at the stadiums. There's, Given what we know about the transmissibility of this variant of COVID nineteen, now there's no there's no telling that that was going to be safe enough to have a tournament with fifty percent capacity due to the airborne nature 
of of how this spreads. So that's another thing where it's just like, well, we don't we don't. It's hard to know if they, did they get it at the hotel, did they get it at the arena, could they have got it in, at any point in time, could they have picked up something that somebody that was infected touched? I mean, like there's so many different things and so many variables that. You know, really, in the end, I don't know that we're, we're ever going to get a satisfactory answer to, as to why this happened. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there was there was definitely a wedding there. There were a lot of other things that were going on at the hotel at the time, and it made it very, very difficult for them to uh, keep that bubble, which wasn't really a bubble, tight. Yeah, I know a lot of people were complaining with that because of, you know, the tournament was being canceled because there's only only four cases, but it turned out. I think the IIHF announced there were actually more cases afterwards, and it seemed like it was a good time to cancel. But what happens now with this tournament? Do they try to start it up again in the summertime, or are they just going to say no no games at all, we're done? Yeah, they are going to try. They're going to do their absolute best to have a tournament in the summer. Um, The logistics of that, is very very challenging there are so many variables including and not the least of which what COVID 19 is doing at that point i mean there's some thought well maybe it'll be better in the winter uh, better in the summer versus the winter and maybe that's going to be the time that we can have it and all those other things but i do think that that's it's not a guarantee it's certainly not a guarantee that that's going to be the case when things go um obviously the the biggest reason to continue to have the tournament you know, from a, from a, from an emotional standpoint is to give the players the opportunity to play in an event that they had already started. Um, they would just restart the whole tournament from my understanding and just, you know, like the games that we saw didn't happen. Um, but, but the thing about that is, is that, you know, the, the, there's also the money elements and it's going to be really expensive to put this on. And if you can't even break even, I don't know that you're going to go forward with the event. And so, the World Junior Championship and the World Men's Championship are essentially what funds the rest of the IIHF tournament schedule. And they have not just the top-level tournaments, the women's and the under-18 worlds, the women's under-18 worlds. They have all of the lower divisions as well as teams are trying to gain promotion to the next level. And it's really important to the infrastructure of the International Ice Hockey Federation that those lower levels remain intact as well because it's, it's the path forward. It's how these nations develop. It gives them something to shoot for. It gives them a reason to, to, to develop players. And also it gives their, their Olympic committees reason to fund their programming. So that's, it's really, it's really important to the growth of the game to keep all that moving. So that's the biggest reason to try and go forward is, is the money because the, but if you can't have a world junior, that's going to make any money, what is the point, at least from the IIHF perspective, the point is simply to give the players the opportunity, which, you know, is good enough for me, but it's not, certainly not necessarily the best business decision for all parties. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah, especially, you know, you mentioned that who knows what the COVID situation is going to be like in the summertime. Is it going to be better or worse? I mean, you know, are people going to be, are they going to have fans uh, full capacity again? I mean, who if they don't have full capacity, they're probably going to lose money because they got to return you know, refunding the monies for the tickets that were purchased. Absolutely. And there are so many things now where, you know, so much that was paid for already that's just out the window. And, and you have to keep in mind, this was a tournament last year with the bubble where that was a huge cost up front that was that, that Hockey Canada and the Edmonton Oilers and the local organizing committee basically fronted in order to continue to have, they, they got hosting rights for this tournament as well. So that this year's World Juniors was actually supposed to be in Sweden. They moved that so that Hockey Canada could basically recoup the money that they lost from the previous World Juniors, and now they have to do it all over again. So I'm not even sure what the appetite of Hockey Canada is without guarantees of being able to have the event and able to have fans in it to even want to do it at this point because it's a lot of work to have it just go the sideways once again. Well, the double uh, IHF really came under heavy criticism uh, when they announced that they were uh, canceling the under-18 women's tournament, and a lot of uh, women's hockey players and men's hockey players really took to Twitter just criticizing criticizing the, the move because they were playing the World Juniors, the men's World Juniors. They, uh, so how, how much does the double IHF deserve that criticism? Well, when it comes to the under-18 women's worlds, the decision to cancel and not postpone 
was uh, was a bad one. Um, and, and I think that now now they're in this position where they back themselves into a corner and they, they, they have said, the IIHF has said that we will also look to reschedule the Women's Under-18 World Championship and five other tournaments that were canceled in January because there were other U-20 events that were also canceled in January and other women's events that were canceled. So they have to really reschedule the whole deal there. Um, the thing is, is that that's going to be really challenging as well for all the same reasons that the World Juniors is challenging because of the time of year that you have to have it. The fact that it is not... You know, the women's under 18 world championship is not a is not a revenue generating event. It is something that is essentially subsidized by the world junior championship. Um, so I really do think that there's a lot left to to be decided there. At least the double IHF is saying that they're going to try. But I, I mean, you know, the the fact that they basically showed that hey, we're we're going to have the world juniors at all cost, and we're going to can't we're going to cancel this without any chance of 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 rescheduling. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the, the new double IHF president has been put in a very impossible position, but he really bungled that entire women's world messaging. And also the way that he's reacted since then has been further upsetting because he has been very defensive about the decision and not really listening to the fact that we're not asking you to just reinstate the tournament and have it at this risky time. What we're asking is for at least that is an exploration of postponement as opposed to cancellation, which is actually something USA Hockey did. They wrote a letter to the the IIHF saying, we, we feel this is an important event. Can you please consider postponement as opposed to cancellation and find another time for this tournament? And the response from the IIHF president was, fine, you do it then, which is not the right response because, yeah, yeah and, and I think that they would. They would consider it, but it's also a huge ask of, all, of any – federation at this point given the situation that we're in with so few guarantees that it'll actually work so i mean there's a there's a lot of moving parts to this whole thing but it has definitely been a very bad couple of weeks for the double ihs and especially now with the uh nhl announcing they're not sending players to uh beijing for the olympics I mean that what's the ih double ihf going to do now yeah there that it's it's kind of scramble mode really i mean you know the women. The women's tournament will be unaffected by that, obviously, and so we'll hopefully still have a great women's uh, women's Olympic championship and everything else. But, but you know, the IIHF made a lot of commitments to NHL players in terms of what they would offer to to kind of get around some of the concerns about extended quarantines and things of that nature. Now you have to basically do all of that for the, the other players that you know that you want to to come play, and so. USA Hockey in particular is one of the one of the federations where they have a they really have to build a team from scratch and have to do it extremely fast. Um, and whereas some of the other federations at least have kind of B squads and, and they played in international tournaments throughout the season without NHL players. So there's there's a lot there's a lot going on right now. That's the other thing that makes it really challenging to schedule a new World Junior Championship. Is you're trying to prepare for an Olympics that begins in a month. So. You know, there, there's just so many things going on right now that, that are not good. Um, and it's all, you know, of course, it's COVID-19. And it's, it's I think everybody's trying to do the best they can with, with where we're at. But, boy, it's, it, it is not easy right now. And, it, and it's certainly been uh, a tough couple of weeks there. Yeah, especially if, you know, the, if the USA Hockey has to go to the college ranks to take some college kids, it's, you know, that's going to affect college teams as well. It really will, Ken. Like that, and that's going to be the thing is I think that it, there's a very difficult decision ahead for those college players because whether you want to, you know, say, well, this is not this is not the regular Olympics. I hate to tell every coach this, but it's still the Olympics, and it is still a hugely uh, viewed and, and popular thing. You you look at the U.S. games; they most of the pre-tournament games are at times where people will be able to watch them. They're not in the middle of the night. They're, they're late or early, but they're not in the middle of the night. So, you know, this is an opportunity for those players to also, you know, advance themselves and have an opportunity at winning an Olympic medal. I think that the field is very wide open. We'd say the Russians are the favorites, but, you know, I think that there's still a very strong field that you could, you know, you could probably go into with the U.S. team with a large, and, and believe me, USA Hockey is going to be looking very 
very heavily at college players because who were the best players at last the last Olympics? Troy Terry and Ryan Donato, two current college players. They were the leading scorers for the team, by far the best players, because those are the guys that are still close to the NHL. So I'm thinking you could look at a roster of almost half, maybe a you know maybe a third at, at, at worst in terms of college players being on the roster. So and that includes some guys that were just at the World Junior Championship. So. Those guys are going to have a decision to make here, and and it's going to be very challenging for college hockey to kind of manage that. You think that some of the teams with top NHL prospects like Michigan and Minnesota, you know, how many guys could they potentially lose? Um, and, and it's really, I think, it's got to be a decision that's left up to the players, and they have to to go one way or the other. And and this is it, it's a difficult decision. But as we saw Kale McCarr a few years ago, he decided not to go. And it was controversial at the time, but I think it was, in the end, the right move for him, and he won the Hobie Baker the following year and was, was well on his NHL track and now probably going to win a Norris Trophy before things are done. So, um, yeah, it's just it's, it's, it's a bizarre situation for all parties. I mean, I've seen some talk uh, lately about you know, maybe moving the hockey to the Summer Olympics. Is that feasible? No, it's not, and it's not going to happen. Um, uh, it's, it's not going to happen. The, the the hockey hockey is too important to the Winter Olympics for one, and it, it's just it's it's not. Uh, I think you know if in the future it could be explored, but I think it's very unlikely to ever be moved to the summer. As good as that would be for the competition in terms of having NHL players available, but yes, I agree that that's something that people have brought up. But I, I think that it's going to be a very quick no from the International Olympic Committee. Well, Chris, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, well, I'm at Chris M. Peters on Twitter, um, and obviously my Substack site as well. As you mentioned, hockeysense.substack.com and dailyfaceoff.com is where I also have quite a bit of work. So uh, those are the those are the places to find me and get my content. And also my, my podcast is Talking Hockey Sense, which is available wherever you get podcasts. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Ken. Well, I appreciate it. You do a little work with Frank Cervelli, don't you? I do, yeah, yeah, I sure do, yeah, so he's, he's Frank, been great to work with. Frank and I are uh, graduates of Holy Ghost Prep down in suburban Philadelphia, years apart, but uh, I had a chance to actually meet him a few years ago when he came up to do an article on Shane Gossespierre when he was working at the Philadelphia Daily News at the time, covering the Flyers, so, uh, good man. Yeah, he is, for sure, it's great to work with him. Well, Chris, appreciate a few minutes, thanks for coming on, we'll talk soon. All right, thanks, Ken. Uh, that's Chris Peters, I'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Contest in just a moment. The pro football season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets his or her name in the Daily Gazette on Thursday and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com slash football. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is CNN Men's Basketball Coach Carmen Massarello. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 17 winner of the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Contest is Gerd Davinon of Schenectady. Gerd wins a $100 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Gerd. The Week 17 VIP winner is Andrew Krauns of Glenville Beverage. I'll be announcing the weekly winner of the You Pick'em contest, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. If you'd like to play, go to dailygazette.com and click the You Pick'em logo. The NFL regular season concludes this weekend. You can see my picks and where you can watch the games. Go to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports to see my picks and the TV listings. I was 13-3 in week 17, and I am 162-95-1 on the season. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports 
on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family. And do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I would like to thank Ken Fang and Chris Peters for coming on the show. I'll have another podcast on Thursday focusing on college hockey. I'll discuss the recent announcements of postponed games for the RPI men's hockey and Union women's hockey teams, and Union men's hockey only having one game this weekend. I'll have a conversation with Harvard men's hockey head coach and Team USA World Junior Assistant Coach Ted Donato. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed in the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.